0: Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I was going to say And all God's people said? Such a triumphant passage that you don't have to ask for an amen. If you're a believer in Christ, you just naturally shout out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do love us, and that love at all times will sustain us through the trials of this life. We thank you that we can look back to the cross of Calvary and see what you've done for us and know that you love us and you will provide all things for us that we need. And we are confident as we look to the future that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. And may the Spirit of God be our teacher this morning and take the Word of God. And Father, we pray that he would apply it to our lives and that uh, he would illuminate the Scriptures before us, that we would be given understanding in this great passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. That was a great hymn that we sang a few weeks ago. And the last verse is like a grand procession. It says, mortals join the mighty chorus, which the morning stars began. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Brother love binds man to man, ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. And there's a lot of strife that comes on in this world, and we'll see two lists of these things that can come up against us. But we can be victors in the midst of strife if we remember that we are in the love of God. There are three great statements that are mentioned here. One is a question. If God before us who can be against us? Another one is, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then we learn in the last verse that nothing, last two verses actually, that nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is God's love that gives us a victory. And I, I believe we can look at this passage in three different ways here. I think we can look at the past, the present, and the future. And as we look at the past, we realize that the source of our victory is in the love of God through Christ Jesus as revealed in the gospel. Now normally I don't make a statement that long because my attention span doesn't make it from one end of the sentence to the other, but I hope you you could bear with me with that. The source of our victory is the love of God through Christ as revealed in the gospel. In other words, we can take a look at the past and remember that no matter what we're going through, God loves us. Look, look at verse 31. As we start verse 31, we will start a series of questions. The first question is, "What shall we say then to these things?" Now, that is a question that begs a context. Correct? You may be asking, "Well, what things is he talking about?" Well, we need to look at chapter seven and chapter eight. Do you remember um, back in the 60s and the 70s? Now, some of you don't remember that. But uh, those of us who are older uh, would remember a program called Wide World of Sports. And we learned about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. We got a lot of older people in the congregation today. I don't know what the modern uh, illustration would be of of that. But if we look at chapter 7 and chapter 8, we would reverse that. We would say the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory. Chapter 7 is like going through a barren wilderness. And in chapter 8, we climb up to a mountain peak where we see a lush valley before us. What's happening in chapter 7? Well, the Apostle Paul is talking about this struggle with his flesh. You know, we have an old nature and we have a new nature. We won't be rid of that old nature until one day when we see our Lord Jesus Christ. And during this time in our life we battle not only against the world and against the devil, but we battle against the flesh. And this, this battle is a real struggle because we have desires within us that are evil, and we have desires that in us are good. And then we come to chapter 8, we get to that glorious statement. We realize that, that no matter what we're going through in that battle, we realize that there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. So we have the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. We also have the help of the Spirit in this life. In verse 13, he tells us we live in the Spirit. In verse 14, we are led by the Spirit. In verse 16 and 17, it is the Holy Spirit that endears us to our Father, whereby we call him Abba Father, a very endearing term, would be similar to our term Daddy. All right, the Holy Spirit also, it is through him that we groan for the full redemption of the body, which is found in verses 18 through 25. And what that tells us is that by one man, sin entered in this world, and death death through Sin, And so sin passed upon all men, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We fell in the garden of Eden with Adam. And when he sinned, that curse that was placed upon the earth and placed upon our bodies uh, was transferred down through the ages to us. And we are sinners. There is therefore now no condemnation because we trusted in Christ, but we still have the old nature, the old sinful nature, within us, and we groan for the full redemption of the body, which means the time when we are glorified and the curse of sin is taken away from us. In fact, it says in Romans 8 that even all creation groans for his returning. Uh, The Spirit of God also helps us in our prayer life in verses 26 and 27, because we don't know how to pray for things as we ought to, there are times we realize this when we get in a situation where we just don't know how to pray. There are other times where we may be praying with the wrong motive, but the Holy Spirit helps us. He helps us with these petitions that we bring before God, and he helps us in our prayer life. And then in verses 28 and 29 and 30, we read that all things in our lives are working together for good or in a pattern for good, to those that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. The things that we think are pleasant in our lives, the things that are unpleasant, the challenges, the uh, depressions, the um, victories, everything in our lives are working towards a pattern for good. And what is that purpose of that? Verse 29. For whom He did foreknow, He predestined, and that's all a part of the plan, He predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. We are becoming more Christ-like as we let God work through us. The Apostle Paul said it in the first chapter of Philippians that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. And he concludes in verse 30 by, by saying, Moreover, whom he did predestine, predestinate then he also called and whom he called then he also justified and those he justified he also glorified so we take this question as a and we put the backdrop of the beginning of Romans 8 and the and Romans chapter 7 we realize there is a battle within the flesh that comes against us we realize we have help and hope In the Holy Spirit, we realize there is therefore now no condemnation to us. We realize that the Spirit is helping us in our prayer life. We realize that all things are working together for our good, and it's these things, and it's against these things that we ask the question, what shall we say then to these things? And then he answers the question with a question. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, this is not a question that begs a cacophony of answers. You know what I mean by that? That means uh, if I say that answer to a room full of people, we don't expect crowd noise. This is a question that the the obvious answer is nothing can stand against us. We could say it's the sound of silence. We could say it's crickets is the answer. Or we could say in the modern vernacular, mic drop. Mic drop if God be for us, well, who can stand against us? Now, how do we know that God is for us? Well, we're going to find that out by keeping reading through the passage. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The end of that passage is telling us that God will provide all of our needs. will give us what we need. But the beginning of that sentence of that verse says, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him, us, him, delivered him up for us all. That's part of the Christmas story. That's a part of the John 3.16 agape love. For God so loved the world that he gave, and what did he give? His only begotten son with the purpose that whoever believes in him will not perish but have ever lasting life it's that love that john walvard he was a professor at dallas theological seminary and he wrote a song about 40 or 50 years ago that said love was when god became a man locked in time and space without rank or place love was god born of jewish kin just a carpenter with some fishermen love was when jesus walked in history Lovingly, he brought a new life that's free. Love was God nailed to bleed and die, to reach and to love one such as I. It is that love that God has for us. And we say to that love, if God is for us, then who can be against us? It is that Philippians 2 love where we uh, talked about this self-emptying of of the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, there was a reference to that in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mild he lays his glory by. It's that love, that sacrificing love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippian, Paul told the Philippians to keep that love in mind. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not think it something to be cling to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and was made in the form of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the shameful death of the cross. He did that for you and me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is, he who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. The result is, how shall he not with him, God the Father, God the Son, also give us freely all things? If I'm going through something in my life, relationship problems, financial problems, physical pain, loss of a loved one, I can remember that God loves me by looking back in the cross. And if He loved me that much, He will take care of me all through life and give me everything that I need. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 20, which is a great benediction. And it talks about Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now, may God, through Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete. To do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. To him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. That God who through the blood of the everlasting covenant is going to make you complete. For God, verse 32, he who did not spare his son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? What's the obvious answer? Nobody. We could say who could successfully bring a charge up because we're going to find out in a moment we have somebody who brings up charges against us. It is God who justifies. Now, Billy Graham used to say it made the, had the definition, justification is just as if I had never sinned. Another definition is the act of God where he declares a believing sinner to be righteous. And he did that because of what he did on the cross of Calvary. He paid our redemption for us. And therefore, there is no condemnation, according to the, uh, the first verse of this chapter. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God and who also makes intercession for us. There's a lot there, isn't there? Who condemns? Now, who is the accuser of the brethren? The devil. And in 1 John 2, verse 1, we are told we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So when the devil brings up something against us to the Father, Jesus Christ is our lawyer who said that the price for that sin has been paid. That was dealt with at the cross of Calvary. Through faith, this one has believed in me. And he has eternal life, and there is no condemnation. It is Christ who died, who furthermore was risen with power. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that tells us about the elements of the gospel. It talks about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he lives we too shall live eternally, those of us who have placed our faith in His finished work, who is even at the right hand of God. That, tells us, that statement tells us two things, according to the book of Hebrews. Um, he is at the right hand of, of the throne of God means that His work of redemption is complete. The book of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus Christ is not like the priests who had to give a sacrifice over and over and over again. But when this man, when he made atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It also tells us that Jesus Christ has access to the Father. He is the great high priest. We do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our firm, infirmities, but was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we should come boldly, before the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. It is Christ who makes intercession for us before the Father. So we can look back at the past and we can see that Christ did everything that was needed. And through that great love, He gave us redemption and He will give us what we need for the trials of this life because of his work on Calvary. As a believer, whatever I'm going through, I should never doubt that God loves me or would care for me or provide for me seeing he has invested so much in me because he loves me. I remember a song that was written uh, probably about 20 years ago. It talks about our love for Christ and our commitment for him being like a drop of dew. And Calvary is the sea. The last verse that says, If I should ever doubt your love, my only prayer would be that you would keep your rugged cross etched upon my memory. So, no matter what I'm going through, I can look back at what Christ has done for me and realize that he loves me and he will provide for me. He will give us everything that we need. Now, let's look into the present. This love keeps us secure in the storms of life. We begin at verse. 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the obvious answer? No one or nothing. Let's look at this. This list here that's coming up has to do with the enemies of this life, the perils of our time. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is where the cares of this life come into place. But can anything separate us from these things? From the love of God? Can these things separate us from the love of God? Notice the first one is tribulation. Tribulation usually denotes tribulations that afflict, in the New Testament rather, that afflict the saints because of the gospel. Jesus said, if the world hates me, know that it will hate you. He said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Look at distress That could be translated anguish or hardship or danger. William Newell, who taught at Moody Bible Institute years and years and years ago and wrote the hymn at Calvary, said this about the word distress. This word means a narrowed, crumpled place where one is in straits. Often I think about David hiding in the rocks there. I think of uh, the phrase between a rock and a hard place. These may be refer, this may be referring to situations that we look at that we cannot see a good outcome to, no matter what. In those situations, have we been separated from the love of God? No. There's persecution. Again, we are told that in the New Testament, it is in reference to the gospel. Persecution could mean to run swiftly to catch this is the, this is the idea of people pursuing you enemies pursuing you like Saul pursued David or like the apostle Paul was pursued at each place where he preached the gospel the people who opposed him found out where he was going next and they showed up at that town and he was faced with persecution right and left we're going to find out as we go through this list that Paul really knew what he was talking about by experience all right famine and nakedness, talking about the cares of this life. What are the three elements that we all need? Food, clothing, and shelter. Famine. Um, The psalmist said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's seed begging bread. Now, God will take care of you, but that does not mean that you'll never hunger physically. Paul mentions hunger and thirst in a list of things he personally suffered In 1 Corinthians 11, or 2 Corinthians 11, 25 through 27. Now, we will go through that list in a minute because it pertains to one of the other things described in this passage. Um, Nakedness could mean destitute. Having food and clothing, Jesus told us, we should be content. The Apostle Paul says about his experience concerning famine and nakedness, even in this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and buffeted and have no dwelling place. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that he knew how to live in abundance, that he knew how to be in need and still be able to function. He said, with food and clothing led us therewith," because that's what Jesus said, But Paul said something similar to that. He said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And he concludes that section by saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that verse should always be kept within that context there. Um, Persecution, famine, nakedness, peril. It means danger or calamity. Now, this word peril in our English version is used uh, eight times in 1 Corinthians 11:25 25 through 26 when Paul is talking about the things he suffered for the sake of the gospel. He says, Three times was I beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, in journeys often here come the perils, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. Do you think that the Apostle Paul knew anything about peril? He knew quite a bit about it. And he could still say with confidence that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Look at the next uh, item. The sword could mean a violent death or threatened with death. Hebrews 11, verse 37, that great chapter about the hall of faith, all those people who walked with God by faith. It talks about those that, uh, that aren't mentioned by name there. And in verse 37, it says that they were stoned Sawn in two and slain with the sword, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 44, verse 22, in in verse 36 of Romans 8. You got that? We're talking about Romans 8:36, and then in Romans 8:36, he is quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. For your sake we are killed all day long; we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. This was obviously written, the psalm passage, during a time of a period of national distress. The exact period of time we don't know. We read in the introduction of Psalm 44 that was written to the sons of Korah. But this is typical of the treatment of God's people throughout history. Whether you're talking about the nation of Israel or whether you're talking about the church. From the time they were in Egypt, in bondage, all the way through the Holocaust, and even to this present day, the nation of Israel has been a persecuted people. And God's people, the church, have been persecuted from their early days, and it was often through persecution that the gospel was spread. They stopped staying in one place, they were persecuted, and because of the persecution they spread, and they spread the gospel all over the region. Shall persecution, shall peril, shall sword separate us from the love of God? Look at verse 37. It says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, there are some words that are seemingly insignificant in that verse, but they pack a big punch. All right? One of them is in let me first say that he says, I am persuaded or I am convinced. I've looked at what is against me. I have looked at who is for me and I am convinced that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice the in and the are there. We know according to the Bible that one day we will be glorified and we'll be free from the presence of sin. We'll be in a land where there's no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, no cry. The former things of this life are passed away. So after all these things have happened, we shall be more than conquerors through him who loved us. But this passage says that in we are. In all these things, we are presently more than conquerors, even when we don't feel it even when we are in distress and see no possible way of victory. We are at this present time more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice the word all in some of these things, in most of these things. No, in all these things. I don't know what you're facing today, but in all these things, we are presently not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. And it's not through what we have done. It is through him who loved us. He's the one who loved us. He's the one who gave himself for us. So here we come upon another list. And with confidence, we can face the future, and we can face these things because God loves us. Neither death nor life. The book of Hebrews says that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them through the f- who through the fear of death were in all times subject to bondage. We are in bondage because we live in a body of death, in a body that is dying. But Christ was resurrected, and because he lives, we too shall live through him. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. We could group these three together, talking about the powers of this world and the powers of the spiritual world. Nor angels, nor principalities, talking about rank, whether it be of this world or the next world, although some translations tell us take the word angels and principalities and say, nor angels, nor demons. Uh, The third one is powers. And we get that word And the Greek word is dunamis, and it's that word we use in Romans, or we don't use it, Paul used it, in Romans 1, 16, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There are powers in this world. There are powers in the spiritual world. The devil himself is very, very, very powerful. But we know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6 where we're told to put on the whole armor of God because we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we need to put on the armor that God has given us, but but we need to realize also that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And none of these things will ever separate us from the love of God. He goes on to say, nor things present, nor things to come. His love exceeds time. Last week, in the singing part of our uh, worship, I quoted from uh, Psalm 136. And the phrase that is repeated in that psalm continually is, his love endures forever. Then we went to the message, and I believe it was Psalm 118, and we heard over again, his love endures forever. His love is not going to stop. And the love that he has for you as his child will not stop. It will not end. nor things present, nor things to come. I'm reminded of Psalm 23 that says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. And we're told that that means that you will pursue after me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Then we see nor height nor depth. There's no place that will separate us from God's love. Psalm 139 talks about God's knowledge of us. In fact, the psalmist said, this knowledge is too great for me, I can't comprehend it. He talks about God being omniscient or all-knowing, and there's not a thought in my mind that God does not know. But then he goes on in verse 6 of Psalm 139 to tell us that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. He says, where shall I go from your presence if I ascend to the... If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me. He goes on to say, nor, high, nor any other creature or any other created thing or nothing in all of creation shall separate me from the love of God, or shall separate us the people of God, from the love of God. Can we say an amen to that? Glory to his name. Paul Gerhardt was a Lutheran minister, lived in the 1600s. That's a long time ago, isn't it? And in the year of his death, according to the facts I have here, he wrote a poem. He asked the question at the beginning of this poem, is God for me? Did we kind of come across that at the beginning of our passage? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Listen to this poem. This poem is about five or six stanzas long. But for the sake of time, and they all apply very well to our passage. But for the sake of time and your attention span, don't mean to insult you, but I I live where you live, right? I will only give you the first and last verses. That's kind of like a good Baptist church, right? The first and last verses of this poem. Is God for me? I fear not, though all against me rise. I call on Christ, the host of evil flies. My friend, the Lord Almighty, and he who loves me, God. What enemy can harm me, though coming as a flood? I know it, I believe it, I say it fearlessly, that God, the highest, mightiest, forever loveth me. In all times and in all places he standeth by my side. He rules the battered fury, the tempest, and the tide. Now, this next section goes very well with those last two verses we read. No angel, no heavens, no throne, no power, no might, no love, no tribulation, no danger, fear, or fight. No height, no depth, no creature that has been or can be can drive me from thy bosom, can ever sever me from thee. My heart in joy upleapeth, grief cannot linger there while singing high in glory amidst the sunshine fair. The source of all my singing is high in heaven above. The sun that shines upon me is Jesus and His love. Do you know that love this morning? Have you experienced that love by making sure that you will spend eternity with this God? You know, He died on the cross for our sins. Have you placed your faith in what he did on that cross. And believer, that same love that sent his son to die for you, that same love that caused him to be raised from the dead in power, that same love that daily intercedes for you, that same love that sent the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, is the same love that is always there for you and me and will never leave us and will sustain us through the persecutions and trials of this life and will lead us to eternity. George Matheson was a a preacher. He claimed he had no, no natural talent for rhythm or meter. He wrote one hymn that we have in our hymnals today. He wrote it on the occasion of his sister's wedding. The whole family had been together that day. They had great fellowship. He was alone at night. And when he retired, and he was alone, this mental anguish came upon him, this depression, this great sadness. He, he writes about it, but he never tells us exactly what it is. Now, we know from George Matheson's life that he had problems with his eyes and went totally blind by the age of 20. It is thought that upon the occasion of his sister's wedding, while he was alone, He thought back to a time when he was engaged, but his fiance would rather break the engagement than spend the rest of her life with a helpless blind man. And it is thought that during the occasion of his sister's wedding, his mind thought back to that, and he wrote this beautiful poem about a love that will not let us go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe, that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer be that love, my friend, will never let you go, no matter what comes in your life. Let's trust in him for that victory that comes through his love. Let's pray.